Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Welcome inside the lab. I'm Justin Quinn, here to talk a distinctly New England fandom overlap, reborn with this year's Celtics roster, as well as to take stock of the young season at hand. Over the last three decades, surprisingly few UConn players have played for the Celts, though most who have, have left a mark. We invited friend of the pod and UConn Today editor Tom Breen to talk about the ties between the two New England basketball giants. But before we get into all that, let's get caught up on what's happened since the regular season started. Very different team since we spoke last season, Tom. Yes. How are you doing? I'm doing well, thanks. Uh, how are you doing? I understand you've been a bit under the weather. Yeah, I'm the first person I've ever heard of who ended up getting Moctezuma's revenge from uh, someone coming to visit them in Mexico rather than <laughs> the other direction. Uh, it's it's involved lots of sitting, and I will just leave you with that because I know our imaginations work just fine as far as that goes. <laughs> um, so, thoughts... On the new roster, save, uh, you know, Kemba for later. Uh, you know, so far, to me, I've been really impressed by, and I know we're going to talk about them uh, a bit more later, but I've been really impressed by the young guys. Mm-hmm. Um, Grant Williams in particular, uh, I think his, you know, not that he was a, a, a surprise, uh, but I mean, I think he's really already kind of shaping into the, the player they really want and need him to be. What do you think? I think showing flashes of being kind of the mini Horford he was described as, and, you know, mini in more than one way, not just stature, but also ability. And that's, you know, to be expected. He's a rookie. But that being said, I am incredibly surprised that he's able to stay on the floor defensively. Most most young players coming into the league have a lot of difficulty, particularly with defensive rotations. And he's fitting in pretty well. Uh, Carson, I think, was very – Carson Edwards, uh, the guy from Purdue that they drafted as a shooter – um, he has had a little bit of difficulty adjusting to NBA game speed now that we are playing games that count, but I do yep. think that he is going to fit in pretty nicely once he shakes off this, uh, this funk that he's been having, uh, since the season started. But other than that, you know, it's really hard to be disappointed with not just the rookies, but how everyone's gelling, at least in my opinion. No, I agree. I, I, you know, obviously... It's early, but uh, I've been pleasantly surprised uh, the way that the the roster seems to have um, come together so quickly. Speaking of people fitting together really well, Gordon Hayward, you know, we're recording this during the Cleveland Cavaliers uh, game on Tuesday night, and he is currently 9 of 9 from the field, uh, 22 points in just the first half. And, you know, now that, you know, Jalen Brown's contract has kind of eliminated one of the factors that led to last season's disaster uh, in the shape of Terry Rozier, I'm referring to specifically having, you know, a pending free agency. What do you think about Gordon Hayward's potential free agency? I mean, it's clear that he's about as back as we could possibly hope him to be, but 
Should we be worried that he might, you know, try to get a longer deal? I would if I were him. And, you know, are we going to be the best fit for him going forward? Yeah, I don't know. It's a tough question. I mean, I would love to see him stay, and I don't blame him at all for trying to get a better deal. Um, but I also don't blame the Celtics for maybe starting to think about who they could get if they decide to trade. Um, I know there's been talk about um, Oklahoma City, uh, the possibility of maybe getting Steven Adams. Um, and I think that could add a lot to the Celtics lineup right now. Uh, so there's a, there are possibilities for both sides out there. For me, the best case scenario is he sticks around, gets a better deal. But if they somehow uh, work out a trade that's better for both him and for the Celtics, then that's a win-win too. So for me, the thing with Gordon Hayward is I really, really want him to stay with the team. I really, really want him to take a team-friendly deal. I really, really don't want to be in the situation we were in last year with Al Horford, who did not re-sign with the team or take a team-friendly deal. He got paid, as he should have. Um, And... You know, now that he has recovered, he you know he's a valuable player and he's probably going to be a valuable player for for some time. But with the the Celtics cash situation going forward, with Jason Tatum's deal coming up, are we going to want to bring him back? And we won't really be able to you know sign a difference maker should he leave. So it really puts the team in a very difficult situation. And at least for now, we have the luxury of not really thinking about it too much. But as the deadline gets closer, or if if the Celtics start to experience a little bit of trouble in terms of, you know, the win-loss record, I could definitely see that becoming a more serious issue as we get closer to February. But at least for me, for now, it's something that we can relax about. At least it's trying to find a partner with a big guy in mind. So with that said, the record is currently 6-1. and one. How do you think this team is playing versus how good they're really going to be. Do you think that that's going to be like a trend that is going to continue? Is this a little bit of fool's gold as the rest of the league gets up to par? I mean, like, just what do you think the ceiling for this team is, this ceiling, based on what you've seen so far? You know, again, it, it, it's a small sample size, but I've been really impressed in particular by the defense. Um, when Horford left, we all thought that defense was going to struggle. To, to fill that gap and uh, that they were going to have to focus on offense, developing a more dynamic offense. And so far, early on, their defense has really held together very well. They've had a really impressive defense. And, um, you know, I, I don't know if they regressed to the mean throughout the season, but just the way they're playing to me says they can keep this up and that this could be a very different team, a good team in a, a way that we weren't expecting. Yeah, seriously. I was, I was poised for anything six seed and up at the end of the season, I don't really think they're in contention uh, or, you know, going to be poised for contention with the roster as currently constructed. But I do think that it's not unrealistic to say that a a couple of small moves or some surprise development in, in the big man rotation very well could, you know, I mean, so far the only loss has come to the team that I expect to come out of the East uh, to go to the NBA finals so far, you know, so far, don't kill me guys. Um, But, (laughs) uh, you know, when it comes down to it, it really it's really going to be the development of the younger players uh, and or the the adaptation of some of the more senior senior, senior players like Enos Cantor to the defensive scheme more than anything, but certainly overall. Uh, and you know, there's this other guy, Kemba Walker, who mm. you might have heard of. 
I think he's also going to be very key, the kind of season he has. And so far, he has low-key, in my mind, been a borderline MVP player with the numbers he's been putting up so far, given the fact that they are leading to, to wins. And wins that, at least last season, the last iteration of the Boston Celtics wouldn't have been able to handle. So, with that said, I would like to dive into some of the connections between UConn and the Boston Celtics, two New England basketball powerhouses over the years, uh, as this week's lab. And, you know, you're the perfect person for that. Tell us about the very first Boston Celtic who played for the University of Connecticut. I, I, I am excited to tell you about the very first UConn Husky to play for the Celtics, but first a bit of trivia. Um, the very first UConn player drafted in the NBA was a guy named Worthy Patterson. He was he was drafted by the St. Louis Hawks, um, but his first ever game was against the Celtics. A little UConn tri- and he actually he had a very interesting story in a, uh, separate from the game. He was African-American. He was drafted by the St. Louis Hawks at a time when St. Louis was under Jim Crow segregation. He couldn't travel on the same bus with the team. He couldn't stay in the same hotel with the rest of the team. He had a very interesting story as being a guy who went onto the St. Louis Hawks front office and kind of fought against segregation from there. But the first UConn player to actually wear the green and white was Toby Kimball. And Toby Kimball has been forgotten in a way, I think, um, by subsequent generations of UConn fans. I mean, it was a long time ago. He played with the Huskies teams from the mid-60s, which was kind of their second great period after the early 50s, uh, the Worthy Patterson years, actually. When he played for them, they had uh, they won three straight Yankee Conference titles, three straight NCAA tournament appearances, um, and he was a really fantastic player. He's still the second leading rebounder in school history. His senior year, he averaged 20 points a game and 18 rebounds a game. Uh, that year, they, um, they only lost two games, and they were both games that he didn't play in. The only two games he didn't play in, they lost both of them. Uh, so he was a really fantastic player, uh, drafted by the Celtics in 65 uh, in the second round, um, played in Italy first, and then played his rookie year with the Celtics in 66 and 67. Decent year, nothing spectacular. Um, then he was traded to the Rockets, who at the time were in San Diego, played for them for four years and actually had some pretty good seasons. He became a kind of a standout rebounder, not quite like a Dennis Rodman level, but um, known for being a, a great rebounder. Uh, played for a few more teams, retired in 1974. And interesting Toby Kimball note, he was the first professional athlete in any sport to successfully file a cumulative workers' compensation claim. Yeah, he argued that his career would have been longer, but uh, because of the way the NBA schedule was and because of the training regimen, it did long-term damage to his knees, and he successfully filed that claim. So he had, I mean, he did more than just play on the court. Like He was kind of looking out for other players and sort of their long-term health. Um, But, you know, uh, Toby Kimball, after him, obviously, there was kind of a long layoff um, in terms of UConn history and Celtic history, although obviously Celtics fans have always been a big part of the UConn campus and the UConn community. There weren't those direct connections until uh, a certain Bostonian came into the picture. Yes, Tim Calhoun. Now, I count the first player that he sent to the NBA and to the Celtics in 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 our collective UConn connections, just, you know, kind of, I guess you could say vicariously, uh, being that being, of course, Reggie Lewis. Uh, now, he was a Husky, but 
but he wasn't a Yukon Husky. He was right. Northeastern Husky when Calhoun, Jim Calhoun was teaching, was teaching, was coaching at Northeastern. Uh, and he and Reggie departed Northeastern at the same time. Uh, Jim for UConn and Reggie for the Celtics. Calhoun went on to greatness. Uh, Reggie, unfortunately, passed after just a few seasons uh, because of a congenital heart defect, uh, collapsing at Brandeis at an off-season. Uh, I don't know if it was a pickup game or a training game or what it was. But in any case, it really, it really was the icing on the cake for what sparked what has, you know, collectively been been known as the wilderness period for the Celtics, after the big three, the original big three of uh, Parrish, McHale, and Bird, and you know, coupled with with the loss of Len Bias, it was really just too much for Boston to to remain the team they had been in the Red Auerbach years, but. I would like to to get your thoughts on uh, Reggie Lewis. What memories you have of him? I don't know if you have any. For me, I was a really young kid, and like I knew who he was. I knew that my relatives who loved the Celtics loved him, and I knew that they were really upset. But I was I was you know still too young to really grasp what was going on in terms of basketball. Like, did he touch your life in any kind of a significant way? Do you know anything about him you want to add? I mean, I was in the same boat as as you. I remember my dad was just like devastated by it. And so I was kind of, you know, I I realized this was a big deal. And I knew he was sort of the next generation uh, after Bird and Parrish and McHale. And I knew that a lot of people had their hopes in him. So I understood it was a big deal. But I was so young and such an age, like I kind of didn't understand, especially at that age, you really don't understand tragedy, you know, or at least most people don't understand tragedy. You, You don't appreciate like how young and how much promise someone has. You just think, oh, you know, grown ups die sometimes. Uh, but, um, you know, I, I've actually come to appreciate his game and his impact more as I've gotten older and, and appreciated like, the scope and the breadth of Celtics history. But at the time, I do remember it was just like shockwaves and, and my dad being in particular really upset because he was such a diehard Celtics fan. Now, there is a, another UConn connection uh, for Reggie Lewis, that being uh, that in the... Uh, 1984 NCAA tournament, uh, he came up one point shy of a Sweet 16 appearance when a future teammate, Kemba Walker, uh, his father, uh, Rolando Lamb, uh, scored at the buzzer to lift VCU over the Northeastern Huskies, and that ended up connecting to Kemba Walker through uh, Jeremy Lamb, who now plays for the Indiana Pacers in the NBA. He's also a cousin uh, of a Celtics player, a former Celtics player, or two-way player, uh, P.J. Dozier, who almost ended up uh, unretiring the jersey of his cousin through a clerical error, or so that's the story. He ended up wearing uh, the the, the jersey number uh, for Oklahoma City afterwards. Now we get to the point where the real UConn connections begin, uh, starting with uh, kind of an ignominious one in Travis Knight who, you know, I loved as a UConn player, but, well, it didn't go so well when Patino ended up drafting, well, he didn't draft him, when Patino uh, signed him after uh, a season playing for the Los Angeles Lakers. Now, he was Ray Allen's roommate in college. He was drafted number 29 overall by Chicago, but then Chicago renounced him. Uh, and he evidently felt uh, a, a sort of debt to the Lakers for picking him up after after that near disaster. Uh and he played for them, had a pretty good season. I think he was in a Rising Stars game for them or, or some equivalent at the time of that. Uh, and then got a seven-year deal from Rick Pitino as one of his first uh, acts. Um, so 
the quote that you know has made him famous in Celtic circles is just saying, I have really mixed emotions. I should be elated right now, but I'm not. I feel so much loyalty to the Lakers. You know, kudos to the kid for being honest, but maybe have a filter? Yeah. <laughs> that, that really didn't go over very well, but um, what are your memories of Travis Knight? I have fond memories of him as a UConn player, and I remember he was kind of like the the first like heartthrob UConn player, uh, if that makes any sense. Like he was, you know, he had that kind of like Backstreet Boys look before the Backstreet Boys. Um, he did. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, and he was really tight with Ray Allen, who obviously was the the, the star. Um, and he was just kind of a great um, wingman for Ray Allen. And th- those were those, those years where it started to feel like UConn's basketball uh, was becoming solid. Like the, the Tate George era was, this roller coaster where you thought like, this is amazing. Do we actually belong here? Um, and by that point with the Travis Knight, Ray Allen years, you start to realize, Oh no, we do belong here. Like this is a first rate program and a first rate coaching staff. Uh, so I, I always associate Travis Knight with those kind of those early swagger years. He ended up uh, leaving to be traded back to Los Angeles for Tony Batty in 1998. He won a championship with the Lakers in 2000. Uh, more of a role player, he didn't really have any kind of a significant role with that team. At this point, we arrive at a quite complicated figure for Boston Celtics fans who also happen, like myself, to, you know, like UConn. You know who I'm talking about, right? Yes, I do. Yes. A certain a, a Hollywood film star, also, among other things. My favorite basketball movie of all time, even after the difficulty uh, his you know, free agency decisions threw into uh, my fandom of him, Ray <laughs> Allen. Right. Uh, the movie we're talking about is Who Got Game, for those of you who have you know uh, just started following basketball, I guess. I don't know. I, 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 maybe I'm old, but I assume everyone knows that movie. Um who follows basketball, you know, with any kind of intensity, particularly the Boston Celtics and or UConn. But drafted fifth overall for the Milwaukee Bucks in 1996, 1996 he was traded to Seattle uh, with teammate Kevin Ollie uh, in 2003, which, of course, set him up to be traded to the Celtics in 2007 with Glenn Davis for Delonte West, Wally Zerbiak, and Jeff Green, making the KG trade viable and eventually leading to one of the best starts in NBA history and a 66-16 record, and of course, Banner 17. After that, Ray and a lot of other people's injuries, particularly uh, Kevin Garnett's, um, kept a repeat of that from happening, Uh, but I view his tenure in Boston as a successful one because, granted, we are spoiled as Boston Celtics fans with championships, but championships for most teams in the NBA are rare, and you know, in the last three decades, even for Boston, they're rare. So for me, even though you know his exit was far from optimal, shall we say, uh, I do still value his, his, his presence on the Celtics, and I don't think it tarnishes his legacy much with a little bit of time. How he gets along with his teammates to this day, it's difficult for me, but you know that's his business and not mine, so I will leave that there. But I'm curious your thoughts about Ray Allen uh, in general and as a Celtic. Uh, you know, in general, I have the highest opinion of him. He still does a lot at UConn. Um, some guys come through uh, and also some women for the women's program come through. They have a great college career. They leave, they sort of never look back at stores. 
Um, Ray is one of the players who's constantly coming back, raising money for scholarships, for need-based scholarships. Um, he, he's someone who really does have a strong connection with UConn, so I always appreciate that. And, you know, unlike you, honestly, you know, his career as a Celtic, that season, the championship season, you know, we talked about Hollywood before. That really was like a storybook season. I mean, everything about it just came together so well. I have such fond memories of that year. And, um, you know, I know that his departure was not the way I think anyone wanted it to be. But to me, like you said, with distance, you really focus more on the good. And, I mean, I will always have incredible memories of that championship. Yeah, for me, what I want to see at this point is for those guys to put put all of that behind them. For, for those of you who are recent Celtics fans, uh, Allen eventually left for Miami for a deal. Uh, basically, it was a mid-level exception deal, three years for $3 million a year, uh, versus a Boston offer of two years for $6 million a year. Uh, and... You know, the fact that he went to one of the teams that had been their biggest rival over recent years and the fact that he did it for less money really, uh, it really rubbed people the wrong way. At the time, myself included, with a little bit more distance, I understand how he felt about it. Um, given the fact that he had been dangled as a trade chip several times, he had seen his role diminish to, to players like uh, Rajon Rondo and Avery Bradley. And without, with all that in mind, I get it. It's still, you know, he saw their handwriting on the wall and he did what he, he should do for himself. As, as I've gotten older and as I have thought about, you know, the humanity of basketball players, the thing that still bothers me and only, you know, a very small amount compared to previously is just how, how poorly the relationships between people who were so close at one time now are. And it's not just on him. So I will leave that there. Uh, but your thoughts on all that awkwardness, the 10-year reunion uh, weirdness that happened recently, um, and you know anything else you'd like to add? You know, I, I, you mentioned people who might have come to uh, Celtics fandom more recently, the younger Celtics fans. Um, you know, even not-so-young Celtics fans might not know the whole history of Bill Russell and his estrangement um, from the team, which lasted longer and was, I think, the, the root causes of it were probably more painful for everybody than the with Ray Allen. And ultimately um, that got put aside. Bill Russell uh, sort of forgave the treatment he, he had and, and was welcomed back and embraced by the Celtics fans, by Celtics nation. I think the same thing could happen for Ray Allen and the team. I think you're right. I, I think the more time passes, the more people will realize that, um, you know, the feelings in the moment sort of aren't the important things here and they'll, they'll put that aside. Uh, and I think, I think people in Boston w- would be happy to welcome him back uh, at some point. I noticed that with the whole Kevin Ollie situation, uh, his his being let go uh, for cause, and if there are certain aspects of this you can't talk about because of your work, I totally understand. It seemed I, I do I recall reading that Ray has not been as close as he has been while that has been being sorted out. Um, do you do you think that that situation is going to be salvageable in the long term, uh, or do you think that's just a situation that is going to have to be an unfortunate collateral damage for where the program was at the time? I think you know that's a that's a really painful situation, obviously, because so many people loved uh, Kevin Ali. Um, but I also understand sort of the decisions that were made, uh, and I understand why he's angry. Uh, but I also understand why they felt they had to go in a different direction, and I mean the contract. Part of the blame is uh, on whoever on the athletic department signed that contract. I mean, if you look at it, it was a sort of like, you can never leave here kind of thing. I mean, it was an incredible ironclad contract that they no um, 
uh, college coach would ever have. Um, that there's tremendous bitterness, and it's sort of divided a lot of the alums among the players because a lot of uh, players thought that Kevin Ollie was being disrespectful to Calhoun, and a lot of Calhoun guys and other people, especially Kevin's teammates, thought that the whole situation was bad for Kevin. So there's a lot of tension, but I think um, for the most part, everyone is kind of unified around the school at least. Uh, but there's this, it is, it is simmering in the background and I'm not really sure how it gets resolved, at least in the short term. I do hope that time will also have that sort of effect, but I mean, it's really hard to say at this point in time. And again, you know, not everything, in, not everything in sport goes perfectly, but time heals all wounds or at least most of them. Now there was a pretty big jump between uh, Ray Allen's time and the most latest, uh, Boston Celtic with a UConn connection, uh, Kemba Walker. Mm. Uh, now, he was at UConn from 2008 to 2011 and won an NCAA championship with, in my mind, the most spectacular run I have ever seen of any team in the NCAA uh, tournament. Uh, five games, five days uh, for the Big East uh, championship that was the only way that team was getting into the tournament in the first place, and then six more games of single elimination that elevated them to the championship with some surprise appearances uh, of his current teammates uh, in that run, being uh, Brad Wanamaker, uh, being one of the players on the floor for Pitt, uh, as he shot the buzzer beater that started that run, um, and another Brad, uh, his head coach now, uh, being on the losing side as head coach of Butler on the far side. Like, what was that run for like for you? Describe it for me, uh, if you could. Yeah, I, I was living in North Carolina at the time. And, you know, like a lot of people in the beginning, like I just I, I was happy, but I kept telling myself, like, this is not going to like don't get too excited. This is going to come to an end because that I mean, you know, that was not a great regular season team. They did not have a great uh, season. They, they looked really clunky, like a lot of parts that didn't quite fit together. He was the standout for sure. Um, but the way he stepped up in the postseason, you know, it's amazing to think he was 20 years old uh, through all that. Like he was really young, took the team on his shoulders and win after win. Like I started to get more and more unhinged. And uh, I remember <laughs> that night of the the, the championship game uh, in a bar in Raleigh, North Carolina, with a bunch of people who were like kind of casual sports fans. So they're like, oh, you know, Butler's a good underdog story. We'll root for the underdog. And I was like losing my mind. <laughs> that was an ugly game too. The championship game, I, I, it has to be said, that was not the prettiest game ever. Neither team got to even a typical NBA scoring level of one team. It was like 40 something, 42 to 38 or something absurd like that. Yeah, it was, it was bad. And, and, um, coming at the end of that incredible run where the Huskies had played such amazing basketball, it was, it was nerve wracking to kind of see them fall apart, but also Butler was falling apart at the same time. And I felt bad for Butler because, you know, the year before they had made it to the final game and, and lost to Duke of all Duke. teams. But I, I was, I was beside myself and, and trying not to get excited as the tournament went on thinking like this team is going to revert to what they were. They're going to get blown off the floor. They're going to lose in a heartbreaker, which is common in UConn history. Uh, sadly, we've lost a lot of heartbreaking games in NCAA tournaments, but uh, I, I, that might be, I mean, the first one in 99, the first national championship, I think is the, the most fondly remembered, but um, ugly game and all the, the, the Kemba Walker championship is a real standout for me. Now, I will actually have to differ with you just because Shabazz Napier's podium speech was the greatest 
I don't know how to say, uh, nightcap, I guess, to, to a championship ever, calling the NCAA to task for how their policies affect student-athletes under the guise of treating them better. Um, but, you know, that's just me. No, I agree with that. Maybe channeling the, the spirit of Toby Kimball and, and standing up for the players. I appreciate Indeed. that. Indeed. After his college days, uh, Kemba went straight to a team that no longer exists, at least in name, the Charlotte Bobcats. Uh, I don't even remember. Were they in New Orleans then? Do you remember? Uh, when he went to the Bobcats? No, I think they were in North Carolina. Okay. So he was drafted ninth in 2011 uh, and has since become a three-time All-Star, one-time All-NBA, which, of course, this is exactly the type of player that you would totally, you know, let walk for basically nothing, uh, low ball in free agency, uh, and not trade, uh, when you could have gotten some serious value for him, right? <laughs> Maybe not. I don't know. I'm not, I'm not sure that's how I'd handle it. <laughs> yeah, that might in retrospect have been stupid on the uh, front office of the Charlotte now Hornets, uh, part, but hey, you know, I am not minding that whatsoever because, you know, after that aforementioned disastrous season uh, of last year with the Celtics, we would have been utterly screwed had we not landed uh, him as a replacement for Kyrie Irving, having lost Al Horford as well. Uh, And so far, he has really, you know, had no problems fitting in whatsoever. He talks about having, you know, slow starts, which, sure, okay, I would love to see you start even better than this, but I mean, come on now, dude. We have lost one game out of five. We're probably going to win this game against Cleveland uh, that is happening right now, and Kemba Walker, in no small part, uh, has been behind it with 30-point games in the majority of games he's played. So, I don't know. What do you think? Does he Is he a good fit? Oh, I think he's a great fit. I mean, it's still early days, but uh, I think... He was excited to come back to the Northeast. He likes playing here. He knows the area. Um, and I think he was excited to get out of the situation where he was in, in uh, Charlotte, unfortunately. So I think his attitude is great. I think he's excited to play. And I think his teammates are looking to him to be a leader. And he's stepping up to be that leader. Absolutely. And I, I really do think that that leadership, that leadership style, uh, going all the way back to, to UConn, uh, it's infectious. There's no way that, that that UConn team that won the chip would have possibly even sniffed the NCAA tournament, never mind win it, uh, without him. You know, And it wasn't just his skills. It was how he empowered his teammates to be really better players than they, they actually were. Uh, overall, and you know that might sound like a mean thing to say, but you know history bears this out. I mean, there aren't any other players of note who graduated from that in terms of the NBA. A lot of them have gone on to play basketball around the world elsewhere and have been fairly successful, earned a decent amount of money. But the engine that powered UConn to that championship was without a doubt Kemba, and it wasn't just his on-court skills; it was that leadership. So, for me at least, I am. You know, accounting most of Boston's early success to how that, I guess you could say, attitude has infected the rest of the team after a season with a leader who, through, you know, totally understandable reasons, now that we have a better idea of what happened to Kyrie Irving with his grandfather, with his situation, and with his quirkiness, not really being able to stand up to to the Boston area media. Um, all of that combined, I don't blame Kyrie. Uh, I don't want him on my team, <laughs> but yeah. I, I don't blame him. 
for for what happened. Uh, he's still a fairly young player, and you know the way he dealt with tragedy, the way he dealt with loss, it was an anchor for the team. And I think we're seeing exactly the opposite this season. What are your thoughts? I agree. I, I think Kemba's a better fit in terms of personality, and I think you mentioned that the the Boston, the pressure of the Boston media. Not that UConn is comparable, but he understands what the the Northeastern sports press is like. And he understands, you know, having been in an NCAA tournament where they were sort of seen as like these ridiculous underdogs, he understands what it's like to be under the the harsh glare of the spotlight. And also, honestly, playing basketball in North Carolina, like there's always this sort of um, this reputation of the NBA team is secondary to all the college teams because that's where the the real passion is in North Carolina. And I think he's able to sort of shoulder that adversity and, and get past it in a way that maybe Kyrie wasn't. And I, you know, again, not blaming Kyrie for anything. Same with you. I don't blame him for for how he feels and how he behaves. I, I don't think he's a great fit for the Celtics. So in that sense, I'm I'm very happy that Kemba is taking that role instead. I don't have anything else I want to add about Kemba, but I know that you wanted to talk to us about a moment in time when both of these teams called one place a sort of home away from home yes uh, that being it's now the excel center unless it's changed since i've been home uh a few years ago the hartford civic center yes the fabled hartford civic center uh both the boston celtics and the yukon huskies uh had a home court that they had to get in a bus and travel to uh <laughs> in the case of the huskies it's about a 45 minute ride for the celtics is more like a two-hour ride uh and this was the civic center which was built in the 70s to be the home to the the late lamented Hartford Whalers uh, NHL team. But the Celtics... Uh, sorry, I had to say. Oh, I know. A lot of people here still can't let it go, which I understand. The the Huskies, the uh, the ice hockey team, now plays in Hockey East, which is the power conference, and they play at the Civic Center. Whenever they score a goal, Brass Bonanza's played. It takes me right back. Um, but younger Celtics fans may not realize that from 1975 to 1995, the Celtics played home games, occasional home games, at the Hartford Civic Center. In fact, in the early years, they played five home games a season in Hartford uh, until the uh, collapse of the Civic Center roof in 1978. This is a famous episode in Connecticut history. This is a brand new building. Uh, it had been designed without the snow load being taken into effect. January 18th, 1978, actually a few hours after a UConn men's game, uh, the uh, early morning hours, the, the roof collapsed uh, after a series of big blizzards. Uh, fortunately, no one was in the building. No one was hurt. But obviously, that. Couldn't play there for a while. And after that, the Celtics settled into a schedule of three regular season games and one exhibition game in the Civic Center. And I remember as a kid, I never we we never went to any of the games because the tickets were impossible to get. Uh, it was a good deal for the Celtics because the Civic Center actually had more seats than the old Boston Garden, so they could sell more tickets. Um, and there were about 14,000 season ticket holders, uh, for these games. I mean, this was, <laughs> I mean, so that's like 2000 tickets basically. The, I mean, think, you know, that the height of the, the bird and the parish and McHale teams, like this was when they would come to Hartford, it was like a three ring circus. Um, all good things come to an end. Uh, the building of the fleet center was a big factor because that has had more seats than the, the civic center. But also when I was researching this, I was interested to find out, um, kind of an odd, uh, it wasn't just the fleet center. In 1993, uh, the Connecticut Attorney General, Richard Blumenthal, who is now Connecticut's senior senator, uh, sued the NBA to open the Connecticut TV market to the Knicks because the Celtics had a, a, essentially a monopoly, like a, a lockout on the Hartford market because they played home games in Connecticut. And for whatever reason, Blumenthal said, this is, you know, this is restraint of trade. This is unfair. 
And uh, the NBA agreed, and they said, okay, fine, we'll let the uh, Knicks also have TV deals in Connecticut. And this infuriated the Celtics. This was happening at the exact same time the Fleet Center was being built, and so when the Fleet Center was complete, the Celtics management and ownership said, we're done. We're done with Connecticut. Although, they have played, in the last two, three years, they have played one or two exhibition games in Hartford, so maybe there's a thaw. I don't think they'll ever play regular season games in Hartford again, but maybe there's a thaw. And, you know, the Attorney General is no longer Dick Blumenthal, so... Let's hope they can uh, let bygones be bygones. You know? Yeah, I mean, honestly, Kemba Walker uh, coming out in the court in the Civic Center for the Celtics would be an amazing moment. It absolutely would. And, you know, granted, they can't fit as many people into the seats as they can at TD Garden, as it's now known. Uh, but you could probably charge a nice premium. Even oh, yeah. if you just had one game a year, uh, you know, think about it. Not such a bad idea. I think I think let bygones be bygones has been like the mini sub theme of this episode. It really has in a lot of ways I wasn't even expecting. <laughs> Thank you, Tom, for joining us tonight. Uh, anything you want to plug before we get out of here uh, on your own publication uh, for UConn fans? Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at uh, TJ Breen. That's uh, TJ B as in boy R E E N. And uh, for all things uh, UConn men's basketball and women's basketball, follow at UConn Huskies on Twitter. You can find the pod on most podcatcher apps. Make sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, please rate us five stars. If you don't like something or have a suggestion, please just let us know with a comment on Twitter with the hashtag CLPOD, CLPod. We are always trying to bring you the deepest dives into Celtics coverage, and this time with a little dash of UConn. Take care, y'all.